From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. My name is Lionel Shriver. I'm a novelist. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a novelist. Lionel Shriver is the author of 12 books. Perhaps most famously, we need to talk about Kevin, for which she won the Orange Prize. Born Margaret Ann in May 1957, the daughter of a Presbyterian minister, as a teenager, she announced to her family she would change her name to Lionel. A year later, she announced she would no longer be attending church with them. It has been said she writes mostly about characters who are hard to love. A series of what-if scenarios play out on her pages, troubling, confronting, often uncomfortable. It makes me happy, she has said, if I'm being successfully frightening. Dividing her time between New York and London, she is fiercely anti-authoritarian, a self-described libertarian, pro-Brexit, anti-debt, and it seems she doesn't have much time for the watercress and wasabi set who now populate our fast-gentrifying inner-city suburbs. Lionel Shriver, you're famously a night owl. We're meeting in the morning. How are you coping? Only barely, and only with the help of jet lag. So I actually got up at 7.15 this morning, and I uh, shared with my publicist that this is the earliest I have got up in the last couple of years. I usually go to bed at about 4 in the morning and get up at, well, on a good day, 10 a.m., but really closer to 11, usually. (laughs) Uh, Take me back to your childhood. You are the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. Did that mean it was a life or that revolved around church and prayer and faith? There was a lot of church in my childhood. I wasn't from one of those evangelical families where, you know, you were praying five times a day. Like It, it was a politically liberal family, but it was uh, morally conservative, sexually repressive, and – um, it did involve uh, going to an awful lot of church functions, and I, this was not elective behavior in my family. And I resented the fact that I was expected to profess my parents' faith without being asked, and that it was simply imposed upon me. And from what from what age were you aware of that? About the age of eight, I started getting stroppy about it. It's like, why do I have to do this? I don't necessarily believe this. And it became more a a source of resentment as I got older until finally when I was 16 years old, I put my foot down and said, I am am not going to church anymore. I am not going to profess a faith that I don't believe. And I don't think it was a matter of, uh, oh, you know, I had a crisis and suddenly questioned what I believed. I think I never swallowed it really to begin with. Many eight-year-olds, I mean – you know, sort of a bit of bad behavior, a bit of uh, rejection of, of what the parents want. But it seems like there was a fairly profound understanding of what the faith meant and that you didn't really agree with that. Is there something that prompted that? It was an emotional experience that I simply didn't have. And to this day, I, I, I have to admit that I don't entirely understand the religious impulse. I don't understand what it means to speak to God, to believe in God. Uh, to to resort to God aside from that uh, that sense of, oh, please, 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 that we all have when we want something or want something not to happen, whatever. But I don't have a sense of appealing to an entity who is actually there. And I'm, you know, I don't mean this as a boast. 
uh, it is possible that there is an aspect of human experience which is very common throughout the generations that I have been deprived of and maybe maybe my life is, is the lesser for that. And there may be a, a parallel with the fact that I didn't choose to have children. I've been quite honest about conceding that I don't know what I missed out on and it is entirely possible that parenthood would have enriched my life uh, in a way that I can't conceive of now. At the same time, ignorance is bliss. It really is. And I, I, as for church, I'm not missing it. I have read that you were eight years old when you decided you didn't want to have children. Is that correct? Yes, I obviously came of age in in a way when I was about eight. You know, it was a, it was an unexamined vow, and and one of the reasons that I ended up writing uh, "We Need to Talk About Kevin" was to finally examine that vow as an adult and not uh, not a little mindlessly as a child. At the same time, I obviously looked at my mother's life, who was then uh, doing a lot of volunteer work, but she uh, wasn't working, and uh, my father was uh, king of the hill. And he was always off at meetings of some obscure purpose and was the important person and found children something of an annoyance. I thought he had the better life. <laughs> so I just didn't see anything especially enviable about everything that my mother did for us. Not that I'm not grateful. I mean in a traditional sense, she was a good mother. She mopped up our sick. Um, she took care of us when we were feverous. Uh, she made sure we had enough to eat and we were not left uh, unattended for so long that uh, the police had to be wrong. I am glad for what she did for me and I, I actually have pulled a fast one because I got somebody to take care of me and I haven't in turn had to take care of anyone else in the same way. But the decision was less about wanting children or otherwise and more about not wanting the life that your mother had. Yes, and, and again, a kind of um, absence of an emotion that so many women seem to experience, and men too, you know, this desire for progeny, this this impulse to reproduce that just never hit me. You know, I never had that sense of a, you know, biological clock. Life was perfectly pleasant for me. I was enjoying my work, and there never came a point where it's like, oh, I feel this terrible emptiness I have to fill. You wouldn't be the only person on the planet to to not have that uh, instinct necessarily, uh, but it is something that many people struggle with because it, it makes them feel separate from society or community in which the expectation is that they do have an instinct uh, for wanting children. Has that been a struggle for you to cope with the kind of social environment? I've said before that I think that if anything, I have not suffered from enough social stigma from not having kids. After all, biologically, it's perverse and the species is dependent on enough women to reproduce. I mean, it didn't used to be a choice after all and now it is. So in order for people who have access to birth control to be part of a species that sticks around, you have to have enough people saying, well, this is actually something I want. And, and because it hasn't been a choice for very many generations, I think that's one reason that by the time we need to talk, we need to talk about Kevin came along, we were ready to have this conversation and to talk about parenthood as a choice and not just as an obligation or an unthinking biological 
consequence of having had a good time last night. Can you take me back to that house in North Carolina in the 1960s? What was it like growing up there? What was the environment like? Was it a happy family home? I have only realized in my adulthood that I had a wonderful childhood and that I grew up in a rather marvelous place. North Carolina is a a much nicer state than I ever realized. I just wanted to get out of the South as as a kid. I look back and I think, gosh, you know, with the mountains on one side and the coast on the other. But the other thing I would say about my childhood that made me especially fortunate was that I grew up in an era that parents let their kids out of the house to play and we just did whatever we wanted for hours as long as we showed back up for meals my parents didn't worry about us. Now, I had the kind of childhood that would be considered irresponsible now. And uh, children are constantly supervised. And not only are they supervised, but they're also directed in their play so that parents and and other caretakers believe that it's their responsibility to come up with activities. Well, nobody gave us any activities. We had to make up our activities. And it's much better. I think it was better for me creatively. You know, I staged elaborate plays with the neighbors in the backyard. Tell me about one of those. Oh, I, one of the one of them I call, called one of them Super Goof. Gosh, I haven't thought about this in years. And it was a takeoff on the Superman. You know, the, all those superheroes. Only Super Goof was particularly ineffective. And so it was always trying to do these um, grand, noble rescues uh, and that they always went wrong. I, I'm, I'm sure I would find it you know, both incompetent and, and hilarious if I saw it today, but, but also charming. You know, and we. What, we and what are you doing? You're playing the part of Super Goof. Yes, I, I was always the star. <laughs> in fact, that's been the best uh, part of becoming a little more successful in my adulthood. Is that once again, I can ham it up. You like that? I love it. Your brothers. Tell me about them. In childhood, what was what was your relationship with them like? Um, well, I was in awe of my older brother who ended up um, leaving school at 14 years old. And he had to get a special psychological dispensation because that's before 16 when you're legally allowed to This is Greg. This is Greg. And he tested as a genius on IQ tests, which, of course, I resented powerfully. I was the middle kid, and middle kids are often overlooked. Now, I can say in retrospect that in some ways being overlooked was good for me in the same way that being neglected as we would see it now was good for me. Um, but it didn't feel that way at the time. Nobody wants to hear their older brother is a genius. You know, it was in a complicated relationship, and I, th- I'm interested in that kind of relationship in my novels. That combination of resentment and admiration, and they're they're impossible to tease away from each other. And you know, Greg Greg had a very difficult life. Uh, he never got uh, a formal education. He had an interesting career considering that he was completely self-made. I have to say ended badly. He had some accidents that uh, impaired his mobility and he started gaining a lot of weight 
and um, died from the complications of morbid obesity in 2009. And uh, that was uh, the immediate inspiration for my last novel, uh, which I called Big Brother. But at 14, he went off, as I understand it, and lived with two 17-year-old girls. Yes. And had this kind of prolific rebellion. Oh, he made my refusing to go to church at 16 um, seem like refusing to set the table. You know, it's it, uh, I learned rebelliousness from my brother and – could never compare to him in this in this respect, and I was grateful to him later for uh, letting me see that it was possible to push back against my parents, who were who were quite totalitarian in their way. It was a household in which uh, what parents say goes. It wasn't one of those. Um, households what we have today where the parents want to be friends and and it's all negotiation. No, no, no. It was it was top down management. So what give me an example? You know, if my father didn't want to hear Iron Butterfly on the stereo, then it was going to be turned off, thank you very much. Not turned down, but turned off. And did you ever push back? Was there an example of in those instances challenging? I was so mortified by some of the confrontations between my brother and my parents that I decided uh, to go at it uh, with a different strategy. Basically, I became a sneak instead. I did all kinds of things I wasn't supposed to, but I did it behind my parents' back, and I did not rub their noses in it. Like? I lost my virginity before I got married. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Still keeping that one under wraps. You're con- you're restraining yourself from continuing in this vein, I can tell. Well, I'm just interested, though, in your description of the childhood because clearly some very authoritarian sort of power structures there. But it seems like you reflect on this as a pretty happy childhood to a large extent. But what, something I read from you as you went back and looked at your diaries from that time. Mm -hmm. You said growing up presents itself as a form of bereavement anyway, and you say this may be one of the reasons teen suicide rates are so high. That's a very negative view of growing up. Well, when I was younger, I was fearful about becoming an adult, and I think that's commonplace. What I was identifying in that quote is that when you're – a child and especially I think when you're an adolescent, the idea of adulthood is threatening because it's it seems so foreign. It often is in your mind's eye having to comply with a whole new set of rules when you're finally outgrowing the old childhood ones. You real you start to realize that there's yet another and even even more um, restrictive rules that will be applied to you as an adult. And by the way, this is accurate. And you're you're worried that this picture of yourself as an adult is so foreign that it's actually a kind of death. That you you will not recognize yourself. You will become a stranger to yourself, and therefore betray yourself. And I do think that there is there is something to that. And the high rates of teen suicide. It seems as if you're throwing away something that isn't that valuable. And you felt that, that fear. I didn't feel that suicidal. I mean, I had my uh, overblown 
you know, melodramatic moments as, as all teenagers do. Uh, but I used to write a letter to myself on my birthday every year. And I remember one of the regular refrains in these letters was, I'm sure everything I'm going through now seems comical to you. I'm sure you don't take me seriously now. I, I, I'm sure you think Simon and Garfunkel are stupid now, <laughs> right? And funnily enough, I don't. I still like Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> um, but it is there is a regular strain in there of you don't recognize me. You don't respect me anymore. You think I'm a joke. So I'm saying if you take that relationship to the future uh, another step, it makes sense to me that kids who are really in a state of despair – can consider ending it all and somewhere in the back of their mind figuring that they're going to lose what they've got anyway. So you've read back through your diaries from that time. Had you written in the diaries about losing your virginity? You know, I have no record of that. I'm so annoyed. In fact, I only look back at these because I was asked to do a program in in the UK called My Teenage Diary. To me, the big disappointment was that I didn't record all the things that I would love to have access to now. What you don't realize when you're younger is how poor your memory is going to be. And therefore, what's missing in these journals is the details, you know, the factual details, the sensory details of what happened, when it happened. You know, I didn't even date my entries like a moron. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out what year it is, much less what season it is. And I did not write what happened. I wrote my feelings. So, you know, you'll have pages and pages of how upset I am. And I have no idea what I'm upset about. <laughs> I would just – I would like to punch myself. So I, I didn't understand all this great material was sitting in my lap and I was letting it fall on the floor. So do you want to tell me about the virginity? It, that was a little disappointing. And I think a lot of girls and women will recognize this. I mean, first off, a lot of uh, a lot of energy had built up to this moment, <laughs> if you know what I mean, um, because in my family it was it was so frightening because my parents were so condemnatory of uh, uh, sex before marriage and had le- led me to believe that if I were to get pregnant, it was basically the end of the world. So it was kind of a big deal, and then when it happened, it seemed like kind of a small deal. And furthermore, I had carelessly assumed that because I had a fairly good time on my own, that it would be even better and that orgasm would be automatic and would probably be just mind-blowingly improved. And not only was it not improved, but it didn't happen. And that was the big reveal, right? Oh, it's not automatic. You have to figure it out. And as a matter of fact, it, it, it's hard. It takes quite some doing to figure out how you can come, if we can talk about this stuff on You can on, talk about whatever you like. <laughs> um, and I'm very sympathetic with uh, young women, especially today, who are living in a highly sexualized environment and are, would readily make the same mistake that, oh, you know – we're so we're so self-possessed, we're so w- with it, we're so well-educated when it comes to sex 
naturally when we have sex is, is you know, we're just going to go blind with pleasure. And that's not what's happening. And in fact, uh, from what, what I read, uh, young women are not being educated about their own pleasure. And uh, too many of them are, as usual, making sure that the boys get off and there's nothing in it for them. And I, I would really like to see that change. You seemed pretty unafraid of giving people feedback at this time in your life. Did this chap get some feedback about the experience? Um, no, I did not share with him that I didn't come. And I think that's also common because women are given the impression that not being able to orgasm is shameful, that there's something wrong with you, that you're not really sexy, that in some ways you have failed to perform in the same way that men feel they fail to perform if they don't get an erection. You know, that's another thing that would be nice to fix. And I think that women need to share their experience with each other and make it clear, well, you know, when I first had sex, I didn't come. And it took me a long time to understand how to make that function. And basically, the clitoris is in the wrong place. It was such a relief to read a New York Times article just this summer that acknowledged the fact that uh, on a biological level, where that thing is situated doesn't make any sense. And apparently, it has gravitated in the wrong direction biologically. What, over time, during evolution? Yes, yeah, so it's going further and further away from where it's supposed to be. It should actually be planted right in the vagina. Thank you very much. You know, in Rwanda, <laughs> there, I mean, this is the one culture in the world where young men are taught to pleasure women. No kidding. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's Men are taken aside by uncles and aunts and in groups taught and in fact shown uh, how to pleasure a woman. Well, isn't it interesting that it, we in the West do not do that? And it's the one culture in the world, one country in the world in which it is legal for a woman to divorce a man on the basis that he is unable to pleasure her sufficiently. Wow. Well, good for them. That's advanced. Because I'm, I feel sorry for men and boys. I mean, they're never given any education in how women work. And, and I think that it must seem awfully mysterious to them. They're also given the impression that if they don't make a, a woman reach orgasm, that they have failed, and and yet nobody tells them how to do it. And a lot of the women, especially if they're still girls, are shy and uh, may not know their own their way around their own bodies themselves as as well as they should. Uh, should. Should this be taught to to girls in school? I think they should be encouraged to experiment. And not be made ashamed of it. I mean, how, how could you do that in contemporary society? There'd be such outrage, wouldn't there? Why? Well, you live in Britain. You live in America. We're in Australia. It's the it's the era of outrage. <laughs> well, let's be outraged about this. It would be refreshing. Um, I think we need new things to be outraged about. And I think that you know, sex education is inadequate. It's not covering a, the whole um, area of female pleasure. We avoid it. And we also don't talk very much about um, masturbation. Now, the whole idea of making people feel terrible about the fact that they explore their own bodies and learn how to come by themselves is ludicrous. So what do you, you – you've got the platform. What are your I've tips? got the platform and I'm saying go at it, girls. You know, we, we, we joke about the boys all the time and, and, and of course, they're, they're going to get a certain amount of excess energy out of their system. So there's especially – now, especially in the media and in movies and TV, it's become more per permissive in relation to 
male masturbation. But the the girls still don't get encouraged to do that and there have been occasional films that, that explore that. For the, but they're in the minority. Uh, it's, it's, it's time to say, you know, actually it's a lot of fun. It's the way you figure out how your body works. I think women in particular, the more they come, the more they come. It's not like you, there's nothing to use up. There's not like some secret fluid that, that just uh, – th- there's only so much of it. You know, it's like doing your exercises. Work the muscle. That's right. Work the muscle. I'd like to talk about your work. Do you like to scare people? Do you like to make people feel uncomfortable? I like to challenge the way they think. I like to challenge the standard liberal politics that you're going to find in most literary novels. I don't know why it is, but most of my colleagues have all the same politics. So I deliberately explore my more conservative side in books. I mean, The Mandibles, for example, definitely promotes to a degree my libertarian outlook. And uh, you're not going to find that in every other novel. Am I trying to make people actively uncomfortable? Well, not exactly. I want to entertain. I want to make you laugh. I certainly enjoy challenging verities. I like overturning orthodoxies. You said, though, it makes me happy if I'm being successfully frightening of the we need to talk about Kevin book. As long as the book was working and I was depressing you, I was having a wonderful time. Well, that was in response to a question I often get about how, oh, you know, when you were writing, we need to talk about Kevin. Wasn't it incredibly depressing for you? Or when you were writing The Mandibles, you know, didn't didn't you just make yourself terribly anxious because it's about um, economic collapse in the United States? And the answer in both instances is no. Of course it didn't. I mean, what makes me anxious is writing badly so that I'm not making my reader feel anything. The book is boring. The text is tedious. The sentences are bad. That makes me anxious. Or what's depressing is bad fiction. Again, you know, so that if if we need to talk about Kevin, you know, I was in a chapter and it was not going to be depressing my my readers, then it was going to depress me. It's actually it's it's opposite. Now, all I care about is that is that the story is working and and therefore has an effect on the reader. That doesn't mean that the story has that effect on me emotionally. But, but if, we, if, if I think about the sort of sum total of your published work, it, it presents a fairly apocalyptic worldview. Is that not something that you possess? Well, yes, I like to explore uh, disaster, both uh, in an, a writ large sense socially and also in that writ small domestic way. Uh, but I do so gleefully I, uh, with a kind of celebration. So you're sort of dancing yes. on and the that's surface why of the this book, That's why the books are, are at least incidentally quite funny, or they are to me. I'm, I'm having a good time. So why is that? Explain that. Well, I, I think Some that people hate to make people uncomfortable. Some people find it difficult to put people in a place where they're discombobulated. Well, you know that nonsense in college campuses in the United States right now called safe spaces? 
And, you know, they have these little places where you can go and be around people who are only like you. And I'm not quite sure what people do in these places. Maybe they masturbate. <laughs> um, well, I think that a novel is by its nature a safe space. And that means that it's a place where uh, with no cost to yourself, I mean that um, in terms of both reader and author, uh, you can explore your fears. You can explore anything actually, your desires, your feelings. But it is n not going to hurt you. I mean unless you take the book and hit yourself over the head, a book is not going to hurt you. So that anything can happen in it and – you know, disaster films do exactly the same thing. We explore our terrors from the comfort of a cinema seat. So what do you say to those students that are on U.S. university campuses and won't go to a lecture because of one of the books that is on the syllabus or won't go and listen to someone speak because of either something they've said or someone they've associated with? Well, they are mistaking where the safe place is. Right. The books are the safe place. The classroom is the safe place. The podium where you're only going to hear words is a, is a safe place that when we are working out ideas and sharing our experiences with language alone, then nobody's going to get hurt. It doesn't mean we're not going to get excited and, and disagree with each other. But, is, but disagreement, as long as it takes the, the form of words – is not dangerous. Isn't the counterpoint to that, though, that there are students in America that feel that institutionally things are stacked against them, that these universities have this history and culture which, you know, it, it does not present an equal platform to African-American students or different students from minority groups and that they want that somehow equalised? Well, you know, the whole affirmative action thing has been going on since I was a teenager. Um, I'm not big on affirmative action. Uh, you I never, surprised me, Lionel. Oh uh, yeah, I can tell how surprised you are. <laughs> um, it it has uh, too many unintended consequences, and I'm afraid that this uh, whole movement is, to a degree, uh, a, a result of what started as affirmative action. This constant feeling that that in order to create a level playing field, I hate that cliche, that you have to uh, somehow – oh, let's, let's mix our metaphors – stack the deck. <laughs> I would never do that in writing. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're tired. <laughs> we, we just don't have time for me to decide wh what works. And I think that to using injustice to write injustice is intrinsically wrongheaded and it doesn't work. There's a there's a line in um, in the mandibles toward the end talking about how when social democracies uh, try to create fairness, all they end up doing is creating instead a a new a new kind of unfairness. Is and that what you think is happening in America today? I think that affirmative action hasn't worked. I think it has backfired. I don't like. The fact that the assumption in a lot of professional circles when someone is from a minority group that they were given a leg up in their education or that they may have been hired for something other than their real abilities. I, and this is with people, many of whom are, are highly capable and uh, may have been accepted in university because they are really smart. I mean, it, in other words, it, 
it backfires with the very people or for the very people that it's intended to help. Do you see anything constructive about sort of groundswell of activism in America today, the Black Lives Matter, oh, uh, sort I'm, of I youth think... activated around someone like Bernie Sanders for a whole range of social causes. Do you see any value in, in that kind of thing? Sure I do. And I grew up in, uh, in, at a time when similar movements were rising and I, I am pleased to see uh, younger people engaged by politics uh, – Bernie Sanders is an unlikely person to have turned them on. But I think that's kind of cool. I think that's really interesting that this this old guy losing his hair and uh, not someone who comes across overtly as charismatic seemed to inspire so many people. I, th- I thought that was quite intriguing. Uh, I want to understand a little bit more about your political views, your sense of anti-authoritarianism. And I want to do that by asking you to explain to me the story of your tooth whitening gel. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I'm sure your your audience has trouble following that. I've supported Brexit uh, partly because I find living in Europe um, underneath the umbrella of the EU uh, tiresome and interfering. And uh, in another interview, which you've clearly read, I just threw out the example of uh, the tooth whitening gel um, that I use not often enough, I have to say, playing rough with my older brother uh, who was wearing a World War I medal helmet. Uh, I ran into him and I broke two of my teeth. So I have two dead front teeth. They took a long time to die, but they're turning dark. It's not really optional for me not to whiten my teeth. That's what I have been told by my dentist. And suddenly in Europe, you couldn't get this stuff anymore. Um, The only thing available was extremely ineffective. And that's because the EU had decided it was dangerous. Now, I, I haven't done a lot of research on whether or not it is indeed dangerous partly because I don't want two brown front teeth and I've been using this stuff for a while and I haven't died yet, so I'm not that worried. But apparently uh, there are all kinds of people in Europe now who are having to import it from the United States because this is, this, this is not some horrible um, unknown compound. This is what everybody uses to whiten their teeth and suddenly you can't use it in the EU. I can import my tooth whitening gel from the the US partly because I travel there all the time and I have an Amazon Prime account. (laughs) Um, So it's it's not that big a personal inconvenience but I just don't like living under a, a kind of government that is telling me what to do on that level. But you know, go- that's not don't the sole. Go- don't governments everywhere do that? To a degree. So why but the is EU, that enough of a reason e- to the support The EU Brexit? is especially interfering. And by the way, that is not my only reason for supporting Brexit. So that was that, – that is a minor aside. Uh, I mostly think that it has grown too large, too unwieldy. Too many countries have been allowed in of those countries – uh, a percentage of them have a completely different uh, level of of economy uh, so that the free movement of peoples where it was uh, not only functional but perfectly delightful when it was first brought in so that it meant that there was an interchange of of people in different professions who could go and work wherever they wanted 
and uh, someone in you know, a French engineer could come to the UK, and a and a a, a British uh, engineer could go to France, and and they could do all this swapping. That's great, but that's not what's happening now. But now it's Bulgarian builders and Romanian cleaners. That's people right. People are not quite so comfortable. It is with a that. mass migration, all one direction, and yeah. so it's not an exchange anymore. It 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 is this big wash of people uh, leaving their own countries behind, and it's not good for those countries because it's often the the most ambitious and y- youngest people who who are who are leaving. So Bulgaria, Romania, Poland are much worse off, and at the same time. The social systems in the UK are being strained, particularly the um, the housing situation uh, and the and the stress on the national health system. You live in a particularly diverse part of London. I do. How do you see that? I am surrounded uh, by immigrants of every description. Yes. And what do you think? Well, of course, on one level, it's interesting. It means that the environment is full of people from different backgrounds, which give the 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 city a, a sense of cosmopolitanism. And you know, I'm in theory perfectly happy with uh, people who are very different meeting and 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 rubbing up against each other. I do I do have to testify, however, that that whole bowling alone theory, whereby sociologists have determined that. When you put very different people in the same neighborhood, they tend to keep to themselves. That they're when they're too different from each other, they don't communicate. They don't rub up against each other enough. But do you interact that's, with that's people the case. from across Europe? I mean, you must go to bars and restaurants where it's Polish waiters and waitresses, and you go into buildings where it's you know Bulgarian laborers there doing are, the repairs. There are lots of uh, Eastern Europeans who are in the trades and, uh, yes, in uh, lots of waitresses. So who's going to do that work if they all go? We shall see. I mean, I, I believe that uh, all the people who are already there are going to stay regardless of what r- other arrangements are made, and, and I think that the Britons who are already in Europe are also going to be grandfathered in. I just there's no other way to do it. There's no way that they're they're going to call everyone home. We'll see if I'm wrong, and and I, I think that it's it's important to take responsibility for your opinion. So I will go on the record that I think still that uh, the, the UK will end up making arrangements with the EU that even if they do follow through on Brexit will so resemble the relationship they have now that the entire referendum will end up having seemed like a big waste of time. I think that Britain will be forced to sign on to the free movement of peoples and it it will be worth it to them to still be able to participate in the single market and I have a feeling that's exactly what Angela Merkel is intending. And so that the only thing that will change is that the Britain has somewhat less influence than it has now, and it never had that much to begin with, not with 28 countries in the EU. You eat one meal a day? Pretty much. What is it? It varies. It always starts with popcorn. Why only once a day? Well, I'm a small person, and I only require so much energy. So I guess the alternative would be to have you know, three tiny meals. That's not very fun. So I'd rather just have one big meal. 
But you said that by dinner time you're starving and more crucially you're deserving. Yes. That, that must be some kind of Presbyterian thing. Possibly. Uh, that there's some, you know, there are all kinds of Protestant uh, cultural aspects to my character that I haven't especially resisted. I keep a strong distinction between work and play. I do my work and then I play. For example, I would never have dinner and then go back to work. That's completely foreign to me. No, I have dinner, then I watch the new episode of Billions. I want to ask you about that sort of differentiation or polarity because it seems to me there's a lot of that in your world. You know, you've lived in the UK for 30 years, mm -hmm. but you're not a citizen. You rail against what you see as the authoritarianism of the European Union and its regulation over healthcare, but then you've written a book which is a stinging critique of the US health system which places the onus on the on the individual. You spend part of your year living in Brooklyn, but then in your latest book, you sort of rail against the watercress and wasabi set. I have nothing against watercress or wasabi. But what's your major question? That's an interesting observation, but what do you... Is that a fair observation of you? Is there more of that in your life? Or am I just picking out small examples and, and fitting them into... Well, are you, you identifying dichotomies or inconsistencies? Well, that's what I'm asking you. <laughs> I'm sure as I am uh, as inconsistent as the next person. There are certainly tensions. Yeah, there are definitely tensions. For example, I grew up in a very um, conventionally liberal-minded household and grew more conservative when I got older. So there is that – those different traditions in my life. Uh, and I've reconciled them with calling myself a libertarian because I don't know – I just don't have another word for it. But it puts me in a an awkward position in relation to US politics because uh, I would characterize myself as socially liberal and economically conservative. I have no problem with gay marriage. Uh, I would go even farther and say that I would like recreational drugs to be legalized. I would like prostitution to be legalized. And masturbation to be taught to girls in schools. Absolutely. But on the fiscal front, I am uh, anti-debt as you observed earlier in the program and I – in vain, I fear, w would like to see government shrink. It's never going to happen. Governments infinitely expand until they eat their young. <laughs> the public persona of Lionel Shriver is somewhat brittle. I think based on you know what I read cam coming into this interview, somewhat intimidating. But actually in person, you're really quite warm and generous. I can imagine you sort of sitting at home and you know sharing a cup of tea. I have had tea before, yes. Um, <laughs> Is I, this a persona? Is it a performance? Yeah, well, I don't know where this brittle character came from. Opinions, I guess, well, I, putting well, them out there. It, uh, it, I feel as if I'm being dogged by a doppelganger some other Lionel Shriver who's running around ruining my reputation. It's really a media creation and I, I, I encounter it all the time with interviewers who say, well, you know, I was really nervous about coming here. You know, I, uh, when I prepared for this, uh, I was girded for this uh, difficult, hostile, haughty person. And, I, you know, who is this? And, and when did she ever give anyone else an interview? 
And I, I don't understand where it's from. And if I'm going to be creepily fem- feminist about it, I, I fear that this is a construct which comes from uh, the fact that I am female and yet, you know, I, I think pretty accessible um, but at the same time unapologetic. I can certainly be aggressive when I get a bee under my bonnet. I have a lot of opinions. I'm sure a lot of them are wrong, but I will still advocate for them. And this is this is interpreted as being stern and and I guess by implication humorless. I don't embrace a, a very typically feminine persona. You know, it may re- reduce to a simple matter as uh, being stern or scary is just a code for uh, a woman who speaks her mind and isn't an idiot. Lionel Shriver, it's been a pleasure. Mine too. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossop. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish MacDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.